This message was presented at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, let's get started. I don't want to waste any of our time. We don't have much of it. So let me go ahead and say a word of prayer, and then we can dive right in. Father God, we stand in awe of you. You're so good to us. And each one of us has such an incredible testimony of your goodness. Father, we pray that you're present here today to teach us how we might effectively share the message of hope that we have, that we can help others come to trust you and know you, others who maybe don't even recognize you. Father, be with us now. Help us to think clearly. Help us to love greatly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the name of the seminar is Atheism, Apathyism, or Adventism. So you've probably heard of atheism before. Ah, theism, no God. Who's heard of apatheism before? It's kind of a new word that's trending. What does it sound like? Apatheism. It's a combination of apathy and theism. Theism, belief in God. But it's apathy about God. So apatheism are those who don't take a strong stance and say, I reject God. They're just apathetic. I wake up in the morning. I live my life. I watch some Netflix. I go to sleep. It doesn't seem like I need God. Yeah, question. Hey, I, I, I always term them as unreligious. Yeah, okay, uh, unreligious or just spiritually not interested. And so there's, we'll see some data showing this pretty large class that aren't necessarily atheists, they're just apathetic about God. And so we want to make sure we're talking about this group as well, and then Adventism, which we're probably a little more familiar with. So the plan is we're going to be going through six seminars and engaging with some of the big questions, big topics that come up in this arena. Today, we're going to be asking, do we need to win arguments to win souls? And then our next seminar will be, can we be certain that God exists? In the second seminar, we'll both be seeing some positive evidence for God, but also looking at a number of objections that people raise and how we can respond to those. Then tomorrow morning, we'll have two about science. Has science replaced faith? And then, do we still need to take Genesis seriously? How should we think about Genesis today? And then tomorrow afternoon, we'll ask about the problem of evil, the problem of divine hiddenness, why does God hide while people suffer? And then we'll end about thinking about the future, space colonies, artificial intelligence, where is humanity heading? But I want us to begin by jumping in to this question, do we need to win arguments to win souls? And so to engage with this question, I want to hear from some of you. Who would answer in the affirmative, yes, we need to win arguments to win souls? Okay. We have a couple of brave souls, or maybe particularly argumentative souls. Who would answer no? That no, I don't think we need to win arguments. And who would answer, I'm apathetic? (laughs) I don't know. That's a perfectly fine response. That's why I'm here today. I don't know the answer to it. Well, let me hear from someone who said yes. We have a mic. And I want to hear from someone who said yes. Why why would you say yes? Why did you vote yes? Who who was someone who had their hand up for yes? Okay, right here. And I'll tell you, uh, briefly, why do you think it's important for us to win arguments? Because if you don't win the arguments, they won't believe. Okay. And so, so people have serious objections. And if you can't respond to those objections, why would they believe? That's a fine point. Someone else. One more reason. Can we pass the mic back here um, to Kevin on the third roll? We're asking this question, do we need to win arguments to win souls? 
If, if Stephen hadn't presented a persuasive argument for the Messiahship of Jesus and his rejection by the Jewish nation, would there have been a conversion on the part of the Apostle Paul? Beautiful. So you look at some of the biblical evidence, and you've seen that throughout Scripture, you have a presentation of arguments. In Acts 1, our theme verse for this weekend, we see that when Christ rose, he presented many infallible proofs. So there was, there was an argument being won there. Paul would go synagogue to synagogue, engaging in some form of argumentation, as in showing from the scriptures the reasons for the confidence they had in the Messiah. So you do seem to have some biblical evidence of presenting the case for Christianity. Well, let me hear from someone who said, no, we don't need to win arguments to win souls. What was your reason? Uh, over here, can we get the mic? I think before we discuss this, we have to know what an argument is. Because when I think of an argument, I think of conflict. And I don't think we have to win conflicts, but mm. persuasion and and giving them facts and information is important. Yes. But somehow I don't like the word argument. Yeah, argument kind of has a combative tone to it. When you hear argument, you imagine two heads going against each other, trying to outwit or outpower the other. But if we take argument in the classical sense that we are engaging in a truth-seeking dialogue together where we're respecting each other, then maybe it takes a little bit more positive tone. Do you want to add to that? We're engaging in a truth-seeking dialogue together. So we're coming together. I'm presenting the best evidence I have. You're presenting the best evidence you have. And we're trying to seek truth together. That sounds more like a discussion. Uh, very good. So it's a discussion with a definitive goal to arrive at the truth of some topic. You know, we don't hold the answers for everything. Good. But, you know, certainly we can disprove other things. And so that's honestly how I arrived to creation is uh-huh. real because, you know, evolution is not real. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's once, I don't know if you're going to go through examples, mm-hmm. but, you know, once you you plant the, the seed of doubt, then there start there they'll dis- maybe disbelieve what they, their, their lack of belief in God. Great. And so th- they'll turn away from that. So you started by saying that we don't have the answers to everything. And so maybe we don't have to win every possible argument to win souls, but there do seem to be some really significant arguments, some big issues where we need to be able to make a compelling case. Well, let's look at some of the biblical data. Well, we're going to turn to First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. And 1 Peter 3.15 tells us that one of the ways that we honor Christ as Lord, that we sanctify him in our hearts, is by being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. That word for defense is apologia, from which we get the word apologetic. And so Peter's telling us that one of the ways we honor Christ, there's many ways we live a godly life, but, but another way is we prepare ourselves to give a response to those who come up and ask questions about why do you live the way that you live? Why do you believe the things that you believe? And so Peter's saying that not only should you give a response, but ahead of time, you need to be prepared so that when you come against those questions, you're able to answer in a thoughtful way. And that's what we're trying to do in this series of seminars. We're trying to prepare you so that when people ask you questions about, well, why do you believe that? Why do you think that? Why do you live that way? You're able to give a response. I want to look at the data of what's been going on generationally. And we look at those who are classified as religious nuns. Now, religious nuns are not 
necessarily only atheists. It could also be agnostics or those who are apathetic, but those who just don't identify with the religious community. And notice what's happened. As we look at the older generations, it's a quite a small percentage identifies religious nuns. The majority of people identify of some religion. But as we move to more recent generations, older and younger millennials, you get to 34, 36. Generation Z, it's about 40%. It's current teenagers, about 40% don't identify with any religion whatsoever. And so you can imagine they have quite a few big questions about God. Here's some more data that breaks down a little bit further. And notice what happens here. In blue, we have the percentage of atheists. And you see a giant jump from millennials, those in their 20s and 30s, to Gen Z, teenagers and those now entering college. It nearly doubles. And so you have a doubling of the percentage of atheists. What's going on with this data? One possibility is that there's simply a whole lot more people who don't believe in God. But I think the data also reveals that the term atheist no longer has the baggage that it used to. And so now a lot more people are willing to identify with it. In previous generations, it kind of had a, a, a weightiness to it. It was kind of something that was looked down upon. But now people feel free to adopt the title of atheist. And so you see that numbers jumping, where you have 14% are just religious nuns, just apathetic. 13% are atheist. 8% are agnostic. And so you have quite a bit of the population, and then you still have about 40, 42% are Christians, 15, 17% are Catholics. So you still have a good chunk of Christianity, but you see an increasingly growing segment that are either religious nuns or outright atheists in their state of beliefs. So here's what's going on with Christianity. You can see there's a, there's a spectrum of the social status of Christianity. On the far right, there's the social expectation you will be a Christian. This would be, you live in a society that when you meet someone, you can ask questions like, oh, where are you from? What church do you go to? It's kind of assumed you belong to a religious community, that you have some kind of faith. But what's happened is it's moved from that expectation to, to maybe, okay, maybe religion is still somewhat respected. If you're a Christian, that's an admirable thing. But now it's continuing to move to, well, maybe Christianity is acceptable. That's fine for you. But notice if we continue to move along the spectrum, Christianity becomes something that's a little bit weird. And then if you keep moving further along the spectrum, it's, it's, it's almost something that's despised. It's, it's oh, you, you go to church. So you move from the assumption of what church do you go to to as this cultural shift takes place, we're moving closer to the opposite end of the spectrum to, oh, you're religious. That's interesting or that's kind of weird or why do you do that? Or isn't that in tension with some of these values we hold as a society? And so we see this shift taking place. Do you think it's a good shift or a bad shift? Well, let's first think, are there any possible positives of it? It's cooler. Okay, so, so maybe if it's fringe, it can be kind of hip, it can be kind of like authentic. There was the danger that if there's the expectation for you to belong to a church, that therefore people would just go with the flow, right? That maybe their faith won't be altogether sincere. So it's possible that the shift will help to make sure that those who engage in life of faith are doing it in a sincere way, a whole heart commitment, rather than just following some form of religion. But there do seem to be some dangers as well. What's a possible danger of it? There's the possibility of persecution. That's right. 
maybe the way that the churches are respected under the law, you, we have less respect, less legal standing for churches. What else is possible? You can get caught up in it. There's also the danger that, that when it comes to doing evangelism, you have this extra roadblock, right? There's no longer even an assumption for people to engage in religious life. So it creates extra obstacles to, to engaging someone in the gospel. And so this possibility of, of some positives is not necessarily all bad. There can be a sincerity of faith that comes with it, but it also creates new challenges for evangelism. Well, what I like about our, our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 is not only does it tell us we need to be prepared to make a defense, but then Peter immediately moves on and identifies what our attitude and approach is to be when we're making this defense. It was mentioned earlier that sometimes when we talk about argument, we have this vision in our mind of, of two people going at each other, right? Heated, you know, just, just, just getting mad, getting upset. But notice how Peter describes it in first chapter, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. He begins by saying, have no fear. That when we do apologetics and, and we engage with making a defense for the faith, we shouldn't be coming from a place of fear. He goes on to say that, that when you're sharing a reason for the hope that's in you, do it with gentleness or meekness and respect. Or your translation may say, with fear. Having a good conscience so that when you're silence, those who revile your good behavior, so have good behavior, in Christ may be put to shame. Looking at this description, not having fear, coming from an attitude of gentleness and respect, good conscience and good behavior, I want to hear from you, why do you think this is so important? Go ahead, look at this list. Is there one that stands out? Gentleness or good conscience or respect. And why do you think it's so important? I want to bring the mic in here from a couple of you. Is there one that stands out to you and why do you think it's important that that characterizes our approach? Right here. The one that jumped out to me was respect. Mm -hmm. If you don't come to an argument with respect, then the other side or even you might shut down and not take the information uh, with an open mind, with a mind of, hey, maybe this could be right. Mm -hmm. If you come to an argument with a lack of respect, then I don't even want to hear your opinion. Excellent. So if you're not respecting them, they're probably not going to be respecting you, right? If you're not treating them with dignity and hearing them out, and if it just comes across as you're just trying to get a word in and prove a point, you're not actually listening to them, then they probably won't be receptive to what you have to say either. That's fantastic. Anyone else? What's one that stands out? Right back here. Good conscience. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think there is no need to help the truth with lies. Excellent. So, so we want to make sure that we're making the best possible case, and we're not being in any way shady with the evidence. We're not presenting ways, anything in a deceitful way, or we're not trying to manipulate them. We're being completely sincere in our approach. Fantastic. One more. In the back, we have some hands up. Can we get to one of those? What's one of these attributes that stands out to you? Uh, gentleness stands out because I, I think that people just in general in this society right now are so hammered with everything like um, mm -hmm. the media or, you know, everybody's always shouting, screaming, angry, warlike and so forth. And so I think that gentleness will almost kind of like be a surprise to them mm -hmm. because they're not accustomed to people just being gentle about something and continuing to be gentle regardless of what they say or do. What do you think that looks like gentleness? How would that look like in a conversation? Or I think it's like, um, first of all, I think it's important that you hear out what they have to say. Mm -hmm. 
Um, because if you're listening to where they currently are on the spectrum, then mm-hmm. it'll help you to figure out what the next step might be for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to just do a lot of listening first. And then when you do say something, sometimes it might be good to ask a question first. Excellent. When you look at Jesus' ministry, it's characterized by question asking. He asks hundreds of questions throughout his ministry. Whenever he's engaged in some kind of confrontation, rather than him coming, sometimes he does say some strong words, words of rebuke, but often he asks a question, an insightful question that gets the other, moves the other person to where he wants him. If you're the one asking the questions in the dialogue, you might feel like you forfeited because you're not giving the information, but actually you're controlling the discussion. If you're asking these questions, you're controlling where it's going. It's a question asking is a fantastic approach. Well, what I want us to do is look at some counsel we've been given on this idea of attitude and approach. So, in Testimonies, Volume 5, page 708, we're told that in meeting an opponent... Now, this isn't in a physical opponent. This is someone who, who is, a, is an intellectual opponent. They hold to a different idea, a different view. In meeting an opponent, it should be an earnest effort to present subjects in such a manner as to awaken conviction in his mind instead of seeking merely to give confidence to the believer. Did you catch that distinction? Sometimes when we're trying to make the case for something, we can do it in a way that sounds really great if you already believe. And you're like, oh yeah, that's right. That's, 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 that's why we believe it. But it's not actually that compelling to those who don't believe. And so we're being told here, make sure that when we make a case for something, we're doing it in such a manner that those who don't already hold our views can engage with it. They can see there's some intellectual merit here. We're not just preaching to the choir. We're actually trying to engage them by making an honest and compelling case. There are two principles, I find, that help us to do this. The first is to avoid straw men. So what is a straw man? A straw man is a misrepresentation of your opponent's view. So your opponent may, may hold to some belief or some conviction, and, and what you do is you, you mischaracterize it. You, you say what? You assume? Okay, you might, you might assume that they believe some other things, some other aspects of their, of their um, argument. But what a straw man really try, is doing is to say, I'm not going to engage with what you actually believe. I'm going to make it look ridiculous. I'm going to make it look outlandish. I'm going to make it appear weaker than it actually is and engage with that. Exaggerate, that's right. You're exaggerating what their position is to make it easier for you to defeat. Now, that might be compelling for those on your side when you present a straw man and knock it down. But for those on the other side, they're going to be like, but we don't actually think that, so we don't find you being compelling. You just seem to be dishonest, right? And so we need to avoid that straw man. Yeah, you had a comment. Can we run a mic over here? I want to make sure we get it for the recording. And if you can speak into the mic about the straw man. I just see a lot of arguments made with a straw man. From a Christian perspective, how we view that with evolution, if you will. Oh, excellent. Like we view, like, oh, evolution is very easy to shrug off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're avoiding really what they're arguing, and we're not reaching to them in the heart. Excellent. So sometimes the way we talk about really important topics, we we fail to do in a way that's actually going to engage those who don't already believe. And so when we go through some of these topics of faith and science, we'll try and model some more mature and responsible ways to engage with some of those questions. Very good. The opposite of straw man is the principle of charity. 
So charity is an old word, which means love. And so what we want to do is the principle of charity is saying, I'm going to be as gracious towards your position as possible. I'm going to assume that you're a thoughtful, rational person. If you slip up a little bit in your argument, if you say something a little bit wrong, I'm not going to pounce on that in order to make you look ridiculous. I'm going to extend some grace, and I'm going to try and make your argument as compelling as possible. I want to engage with the strongest of your ideas, not with the weakest. See, when we do these things, we're following that counsel of First Peter, where Peter tells us we're to have respect for the other person. We're to respect their views. We're to have a good conscience. We're to be honest, Right? And so this is to characterize our discussion. And I believe that when we do this, it makes us a whole lot more compelling in our Christian witness. Did I see a comment right here? Okay, let's keep moving. Blaise Pascal, he's a French mathematician, one of my favorite thinkers. He puts it this way. He says, men despise religion. Here's his hypothesis why. They hate it and fear it is true. That may not be the case today, but, but this is his assessment. That men hate the religion because they fear it's true. So here's his solution. He says, to remedy this, we must do a number of things. We must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason. That, that the things we believe are not against your reason. That is venerable. That is, we want to inspire respect for it. Not only is it not contrary to reason, it's respectable. Then... We must make it lovable to make good men hope it is true. Finally, we must establish it is true. So what Pascal is outlining here is he's showing that there's a number of steps we must go through. On the one hand, we must show that the things we believe are not ridiculous. That they're, not, they're not entirely insane. They're not against reason. But then we must go on and say there's actually something respectable here. There's something attractive here. There's a reason you want this to be true. Oh, and in fact, it is true. Let's present the evidence. So he's presenting a holistic approach. I find that Ellen White presents a similar holistic approach to argumentation. She notes that the Savior knew that no argument, however logical, would melt hearts or break through the crust of worldliness and selfishness. That, that if someone is just hardened in their heart, no matter how compelling your argument, it won't break through that. What will, if not just an argument? Elsewhere in Gospel Workers, page 21, she notes, Love will do that which argument will fail to accomplish. So in our argumentation, we want to give really strong, compelling reasons. We want to appeal to the mind. But we also need to recognize we're not just engaging with minds that have intellectual barriers. We're also engaging with hard hearts. And to cut through the hardness of that heart, we need to have love characterize our engagement with others. In the book Ministry of Healing, the chapter Help in Daily Living, she puts it this way. She says, the strongest argument, what do you think it is? The strongest argument in favor of the gospel. Is it... Some, some logical proof of the existence of God? Is this some historical argument for the resurrection? What's the strongest proof? She says, the strongest argument in favor of the gospel is a loving and lovable Christian. And so, while we want to develop good and strong arguments, we need to make sure, I want to, character, I want to emphasize this so much, that we're bringing with our argument an atmosphere of love. That even in the way we engage with and respect the other in our dialogue, it's characterized by love. So even if at the end of that particular discussion, they walk away unconvinced, they'll say, but there's something different about that person. 
the way they respected me, the way they lived, it, it looks different. That will continue to pique their interest. Okay, let's look at a little more data for some of the actual objections for why people identify as religious nuns, why people claim atheism or apatheism, this, this spiritual apathy towards religion. Here's one poll by the Barna Group, and Barna surveyed 600 different adults, teenagers, and, and they asked them, why are the reasons that you do not identify as a Christian? One of the top ones was the problem of evil. I have a hard time believing a good God will allow so much evil suffering in the world. We're going to be engaging with this Monday afternoon in our fifth session. So if you come back Monday, we'll spend the whole seminar with this particular question. The next one, Christians are hypocrites. I believe science refutes too much of the Bible. So science is one of the top ones. We'll spend some time on that tomorrow morning in our third and fourth presentations. I don't believe in fairy tales. So, so, so God is just a fairy tale. That'll be tomorrow. That was my next presentation. Reasons for the existence of God. Is God just a fairy tale? There are too many injustices in the history of Christianity. As you go back throughout Christianity, you look at the things the church did. Too many injustices. I used to go to church, but it's just not important to me anymore. Or I had a bad experience. Surprisingly, this last one, I had a bad experience, is incredibly low. Very few people report having a bad experience with church. And so it's not enough just for us to focus on people making sure they have a great experience at church. We need to also make sure we're engaged with some of these intellectual objections they have as well. And that's why we're going through the time of, of thinking about these arguments. Here's another survey that was done. This is by the Pew Research Center, a similar survey. Notice the top reason people gave for why they identify as religious nuns, for why they don't identify with religion. The top reason is an intellectual objection. I question a lot of religious teachings. So they just don't understand the basic tenets of Christianity. They have big questions about it. The second one, I don't like the social and political takes of the church, the positions that the church takes on social and political issues. And then there are some other ones. that They, they distrust religious organizations. That I just don't trust. They're after my money, these kinds of ideas. <coughs> I don't believe in God. So there's objection to belief in God. And then this, this, religion is not relevant to my life. I'm apathetic about it. Well, we're going to be going through these issues in the upcoming seminars. What I wanted to do today was pick one of them out and spend the rest of our time on one of them. And one that seemed relevant for us to spend some time on is the second one. I don't like the positions churches take on social and political issues. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time in this seminar is think through politics. And why are so many people turned off by the way that the church has engaged in politics? And is there a healthier way for us to do it? And so I want to ask you guys, how should the church relate to politics? How should Christians relate to politics? I want to hear from a couple of us. As you think about that question, what comes to mind? How do you think Christians should relate to politics? Noticing a number of people have been turned off, rejected the, the gospel because they, they don't like how the, the Christians seem to be politically engaged in the way that they are. How do you believe Christians should relate to politics? Let's run the mic. We have a hand back here. I think that um, Christians should relate to politics the same way God has, like, same way God has given us free choice, yes. we shouldn't, just because we don't believe something doesn't mean we should hinder everyone else from doing it. It's like, you know, 
for like as a metaphor yeah. if um if your head if your pastor was vegan and made everyone in your church eat vegan every time y'all did every yeah, single yeah, yeah, picnic yeah. everyone would be salty but <laughs> so i feel like that's how we should treat other people because god give us the choice to follow him or to sin mm-hmm. and so we shouldn't be forcing other people to do so yeah so you'd be concerned about people trying to legislate some of the Christian views upon others, forcing others to comply with, maybe as Christians we have these standards, but you don't feel that we should enforce them through the law and try and gain political power. Okay, someone else. How should we relate to politics? I forget the specific reference in Desire of Ages, but I uh, did read something about, there, there were social issues in the time of Jesus uh-huh. when he was uh, on earth, and uh, like I said, the specific reference I forget, but he said it was some. She wrote something about being aloof to the uh, current uh, social political issues at the time, and just like today, my personal take is uh, try to be as aloof as you can from direct involvement with uh, discussions on uh, social political issues. But when uh, you're just drastically put in the situation of that you have no choice but to speak, uh-huh. uh, you should take the stance of not defending who or what party is right, but uh, actually stand more for what in general is right. Not who is right, but what is right. Excellent. So you've articulated a view that predominantly we should take a stance of political aloofness. And you cited the example of Christ, that Christ didn't run for Senate. Christ didn't try to bring about some kind of social reform. Apparently, he didn't seem to. Rather, his focus was not on changing laws, but on changing hearts. And therefore, perhaps we should take a similar posture that we shouldn't try to engage in all these political discussions. We should remain, to use your word, aloof to that. Who would agree with that posture? Who says, yeah, I think that's the right way? And would anyone push back and say, well, mm, aloof, something seems, I think we need to be a little bit more engaged. Would anyone push back on that view at all? Let's, I want to hear, can we get the mic right here? How would you push back on that? I'm just thinking of um, what happened during the 40s in Europe. Okay, excellent. Some of our Christian theologians were also pacifists, mm-hmm. and we know what happened there. So I'm, I'm not exactly buying into the aloofness part. Um, there's an extreme to it, which yes. is, you know, the social justice reform and, and all of these um, engagements with... with um, picketing and yeah but yeah aloofness is too far onto the so you're pointing to a very powerful historical example of the rise of fascism nazism in in, in throughout germany throughout europe and, and the failure of some christians to condemn that great moral evil the failure of some christians to speak out against that and so you're saying that we need to be careful that we're not repeating that same failure of speaking out against the great moral evils of today even those that might take on a political dimension Let's hear from one or two more. Yeah, right here. Um, I appreciate what she just said. Um, but something that I want to say is this. You know, we often talk about politics in terms of platforms. Yes. And the truth is, we have our own platform. Mm. We have the word of God. Yes. And it's unchangeable. Mm-hmm. It's not something that constantly changes with the wind. It's not going to be different tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's always going to stay the same. And that is our platform. The only thing is, is I think that people are hesitant to move forward talking about it as if it is a platform. Okay. 
So you're saying that actually the word of God is our platform. That just how different political parties come up with through polling and, and various kinds of consensus building, some kind of platform. We've been given a platform, and therefore we need to stand on that and articulate those positions. Well, let's hear from one or two more. Maybe we can get some up here. I know Kevin is, is very engaged in this question and has written on it. Let's hear from Kevin, and then maybe one more. How should the church relate to politics? There's a lot that could be said here, for sure. <laughs> um, just to make one uh, brief observation, if anybody is interested, I have written an article on this on my website, at vindicate.com, and the article is titled, Why It's Foolish to Hate Politics. And I really would recommend uh, engagement on that. I was interested in what an individual said about what happened with Nazi Germany. Mm. Everybody ought to read this book, folks, every single one of you. Um, I wish I was a wealthy man and I could buy it for all of you. It's called The Death of Democracy, Hitler's Rise to Power and the Fall of the Weimar Republic, and it draws parallels with what is happening in America today. But the, the fact is that there's a lot of misunderstanding on this issue when it comes to the Council of Ellen White on political involvement. Yes, it is true Jesus kept aloof from earthly governments, but Jesus had a higher mission. It, it is not the same as saying that all of us should keep aloof. Ellen White did not keep aloof from politics, folks. She was an active abolitionist. She was also an active prohibitionist. And by the way, in case anybody's not aware, the alcohol prohibition crusade was a liberal political cause in its day, not a conservative one. Um, and so Ellen White was not anti-politics. She did say we should not be slavishly loyal to one secular party or ideology or another because our loyalty is higher than that. But what I think is most important for us as Seventh-day Adventist folks is to inform ourselves as to where candidates stand, and that means watching more than one network. Okay? It means reading between the lines. It means reading more than one website. Inform yourself about issues and don't, uh, and, and be careful to not swallow one agenda hook, line, and sinker. And, and stay away from nationalism. Nationalism is not part of our agenda. Seventh day Adventists are globalists. We go, we believe in a message that goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and our Political participation should reflect that global agenda. Beautiful. So we see uh, Kevin pointed out a couple, uh, a couple things. One is the, the Adventist history, that although we've been trying to avoid uh, political partisanship, that we do have a history of engaging in various issues. Can we hear from one last person in the back? And then I want us to get into some of the data to try and understand our current political situation. Whatever your take on politics, I think we can probably agree we're in somewhat of a unique political moment in our history. And I want us to better understand that so we can better navigate it. Yeah, one last comment. Um, I, I do believe that, um, that Christians should be um, involved politically. Mm -hmm. um, but there are different levels of involvement. Okay. I think it's important for us to recognize that there are things that we are called to do and that we also have a duty 
to fellow man that we should not be ignorant as to how the world works and the people that are involved in these things. Um, like the gentleman said before um, about globalism, it's also important to have our definitions clearly understood where right. you can say that we can be globalist in the sense as the Adventist mission, yes. but not in the political sense where you're seeking to have every tongue and nation mm. cooperate You know, in the same economic sense or even political sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for us to not sort of be aloof to, you know, um, the political agenda and environment of our time because then it gives the impression that we are sort of intellectually dishonest where we are only able to engage with spiritual matters, but we're not intelligent enough to sort of discuss, you know, how the world is actually working. Beautiful. If you don't understand how the world is actually working, you don't necessarily know how you can reach people of different sort of ideas and philosophies. So I think there is, there should be a balance that um, we're not sort of, we're not restricted from, um, from policy but that we should also be careful not to legislate our ideas the same way that um, others seek to do so. And to be fair as well, in politics, you have people of different religions and of different persuasions that are, in, an, in a sense, sort of expressing the ideas through policies that are legislated. It's not to say that we are trying to legislate our ideas, but we have to represent who we are in the arena of poli- in, of the arena in, of politics, without legislating exactly what we think. Beautiful. I really appreciate your emphasis on the importance of being ref- of informed, and I think the importance of this is if we're not informed of the forces that are moving our society, it's easy for us to get caught up in them. And so, even if you think that we are to remain aloof or somehow distant from the world, it's still important for us to educate ourselves on what's happening so that we're not entirely caught up with the current, of, of, of current uh, uh, trends. And so what I want us to go through right now is some of the data of some trends that are currently happening in our political discourse. And in particular, I want us to focus on political polarization. So here I have a couple graphs that show the breakdown of political affiliation in the United States. And you can note in 1994, you have a distribution of Democrats and Republicans. And you can see that some Democrats are further to the left, more liberal. Some are further to the right, more conservative, and the same for Republicans. And what I want you to notice in particular is that in the 1994, about one-third of Republicans were more liberal than your average Democrat. And about one-third of Democrats were more conservative than your average Republican. Do you see that? So even if someone identified as a Democrat or as a Republican, they might be a liberal Republican or a conservative Democrat. And so there's quite a bit of overlap. But notice what's happened throughout time. In the decades since the 1990s, you've seen that the Democratic Party has been moving further to the left, and the Republican Party has been moving further to the Right. And so now there's much less shared overlap. The average Democrat is further left. The average Republican is further right. There's much more of a gulf between them. Only about one-tenth of of Republicans are more liberal than the average Democrat. And only about one-tenth of Democrats are more conservative than the average Republican. And so there's much more of a gulf of separation between the two parties. And so let's think about what that means. That when Democrats and Republicans disagree... Well, there were some fierce disagreements in the 1990s, absolutely. But there was a lot of common ground. There was a lot of overlap. (coughs) But as we move now to the 2014, and what do you think has happened since 2014? 
as you think about the elections that took place, do you think that we, we came back together? No, absolutely not. The partisanship is just continuing to increase. That the right is moving for the right, and the left is moving for the left. And so what this means is there's much less common ground. And so not only now do the parties exist with their own platform, but they began to exist in opposition to the other. What does it mean to be a Democrat? It means to be against the Republicans. And what does it mean to be a Republican? It means to be against the Democrats. And you saw this in the last presidential election. Most people weren't voting for A or B. They were voting against the other, right? And so the, the parties have come to define themselves in opposition to each other. It's not just that we both have a platform, a lot of overlap, but that our platform actually comes to exist in opposition to that of the other. And so if they take this position, we must take the opposite position. That's not to say that there's no overlap. There's still some. There's still some room for consensus and building and, and some room for bipartisanship. And we see some, some legislation, the recent um, uh, reform of the, um, the prison system was an example of that. But you see increasingly it's a zero-sum game that if it's a win for you, it's a loss for us. So we have to make you lose for us to win. So let's go into some of the, some of the factors that are feeding this. I want us to, to do an experiment together to try and understand this polarization. And so I'm going to show you some data, some politically divisive data, and I'm going to invite you to think about it. Now, I do this with fear and trepidation, but I believe it's going to help us understand our current political situation. So here is some data on guns and should we ban guns. So there's a, there's a public debate going on right now about regulations on guns. And, and one aspect of that debate is should concealed carry be allowed? That is, should someone be allowed to, to conceal a weapon and, and go into public, right? Should, should they be able to go into public spaces with a concealed weapon? And so here's some data where some cities banned concealed weapons, concealed handguns, and some did not. And we see that of the cities that banned concealed handguns, 223 of them saw an increase in crime. And of those same cities that concealed handguns, that banned concealed handguns, 75 saw a decrease in crime. So after banning the guns, 223 saw an increase in crime, 75 saw a decrease in crime. Of the cities that did not ban concealed handguns, 107 saw an increase in crime, 21 saw a decrease in crime. Now this is significant because a lot of people have various debates about, well, is allowing people to carry guns, will it make us safe or less safe? People have guns, so that seems dangerous, so maybe less safe. Oh, but no one's going to use a gun because they don't know who else has a gun that they might use back against. It's made more. There's two sides to this debate. You're probably familiar with it. My question is, just looking at this data, does banning concealed handguns, is it associated with an increase, a greater increase in crime, or a greater decrease in crime? As you compare these two data sets... Does banning concealed handguns lead to a greater increase in crime? Remember, of those that, conceal, that ban concealed handguns, 223 saw an increase, 75 saw a decrease. Of those that did not, 107 saw an increase, 21 saw a decrease. So my question for you is, does banning concealed handguns, is it associated with more of an increase or more of a decrease? Okay, we're going to vote. 
So look at the data. Based on this data, do you believe that banning concealed handguns is more likely to increase the crime or decrease? Are you ready? We're going to vote. I know some of you are thinking, well, there's all kinds of other factors. Maybe we need to look at what these cities were and, and some of the crime stats and the demographics of the cities and, and what other laws were they passing. True, there could be a lot of other confounding variables, but just looking at this data, what's the association? Does banning concealed handguns lead to an increase in crime or decrease in crime? A bunch of you are about to get mad at me, but here we go, okay? Who says that banning concealed handguns leads to an increase in crime? Okay, looking at the data, a good number of us. Who says that banning concealed handguns is more likely to lead to a decrease in crime? A third-party voter? What's your position? There's more to it. Well, yes, we could dive into data much deeper. But just in asking that question, I want us to to look at a quick analysis. Notice that those cities that ban concealed handguns, 75% saw an increase in crime. Versus those cities that did not ban concealed handguns, 84% 84% saw an increase in crime. Whereas those that banned concealed handguns, 25 saw a decrease versus only 16 for those that did not. So it seems like from this data that banning handguns is more likely to give you a, an increase in the decrease, is more likely to give you a decrease in crime. It's improved the, 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 the possibility of decreasing crime. And so those who said that banning concealed handguns is greatly associated with a decrease in crime, You got it. Very good. Now, for those who don't like that response, you should know this data is entirely made up. It's from a study that was conducted at uh, at the Yale Law School, and they gave data. They both gave the original data set to half the participants. To the other half participants, they gave the opposite data. And so this opposite data should uh, suggest that banning guns leads to an increase in crime. So the first data set suggests that it leads to a... Decrease, the second suggested leads to an increase. And then they saw, okay, how people answered. Only 30% got it correct. But then they said, well, let's see how someone's political affiliation informed how they answered the question. And here's where things get really interesting. When the data suggests that banning handguns would lead to an increase in crime, the Republicans caught it. They're like, yeah, if you ban handguns, the data suggests leads to an increase in crime. So they got it correct. But when the data suggested that banning handguns would lead to a decrease in crime, the Republicans got it wrong. The majority of them missed it. Same thing with Democrats. When the data suggested that banning handguns would lead to a decrease in crime, the Democrats were more likely to get it right. To say the data says it leads to a decrease in crime. And when it's an increase, the Democrats were less likely to get it right. And so we see that people's political persuasions were actually influencing the way they saw the data. Now, you might say that's only because the people aren't very good in mathematics. I'm a math professor, and so that's my thesis, right? If they had taken my math classes, they would be much better, and they would would be able to answer correctly, and their mathematical knowledge would overcome all political bias. So what they did was they said, well, let's test the people and see what their mathematical ability is. And then they pulled out those that were proficient in mathematics. And what do you think happened? All political bias disappeared. It actually increased. Those who are proficient in mathematics 
If you're Republican and the data says that there's an increase in crime, you're more likely to get it right that there's an increase in crime. But if there's a decrease in crime, you're just as likely to get it wrong. You, you can't notice that the data's telling you there's a decrease in crime. If you're a Democrat and there's a decrease in crime, you're more likely to get it right. But if there's an increase in crime, you're just as likely to get it wrong. And so we see that people's political persuasions were actually coloring the way that they saw the data. This is significant. It says that, that we, we exercise something called strategic reasoning, that you have some intuition of how you think the world ought to be, especially in politics, and then you reason your way to the conviction that that must be right. So Jonathan Haidt concludes in the book, The Righteous Mind, that reasoning can take you wherever you want to go. He summarizes the problem like this. He says, we use two different standards of evidence. If there's something we want to believe is true, we ask the question, can I believe it? And then we look for any piece of supporting evidence. But if there's something we don't want to believe is true, we don't ask, can I believe it? We ask, must I believe it? And then we look for any kind of contrary evidence that prove otherwise. So you go to Google, and if you want to believe something, you look for the first result that supports it. That's right, and if you don't want to believe, you go to Google and you go through the results and you find something that counters it. And this helps to explain how we can polarize so quickly. There's a number of social influences that, that contribute to our polarization. One has been the proliferation of news sources. If you go back to the 1950s, 60s, we don't have very many news networks. And so you just have a handful of news networks, and so everyone's tuning in to the same news for the hour nightly news, and therefore that news has to appeal to a broad range of people. It has to try to appear to be, you can question how unbiased it really was, but they have to appear to be unbiased because they're appealing to the whole nation tuning in. But then you get the rise of cable news, 24-7 news shows, and people can begin specializing in what news source they go to. So you start getting some news sources to the left and some news sources to the right, and those news sources exist to appeal to that segment. And now with social media, you get new news sources coming out, and we have all kinds of news sources that some exist entirely on the left and some entirely to the right, and they're appealing to that niche audience. And so you can see what happens on social media. Here's a graph of social media behavior and the sharing of news stories. And if you look at this graph, notice in the red you have this cluster and these are individuals, each connection between the dots are them resharing and liking each other's content. And what you notice is, is the red is its own isolated ecosystem. It's people sharing Republican right-leaning stories and liking it and sharing it, and, and they have their own news sources that produce content that's favorable to their position. But then similarly over here, you have a blue cluster, and they are sharing and liking their own content. And there's very little interaction between the two. There's very few nodes that connect the two. And so we get these echo chambers where there exists through social media individuals who go find their own tailored news to support their worldview, and then they share it within that ecosystem. So if that's the environment we live in, in this political divide, where are we to exist as Christians? Are we to implant ourselves in the center of one of these two echo chambers? Or are we to exist somewhere else? What's interesting is you can look at the religious breakdown of religious communities. And you can see that just as how the nation is polarized, so have churches. There's a number of religious communities that are predominantly led by Democrats. So here was a study that was done by the New York Times that looks at the leaders of various religious communities. 
And they identified that there's a number of religious communities that are predominantly democratic, that lean left on social issues and, and left on various political issues. And there's a number of religious communities that are altogether right-leaning, that the vast majority of the leadership are Republicans and the members of predominantly Republicans are lean to the political right. Where does Adventism exist? Where do you think we should exist? Who says we should go right? Who says we should go left? Well, here's the data. Currently, we exist right in the middle. About 25% of, Repub- of, 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 of Adventist pastors are Demo- uh, Repub- uh, registered as Democrats. About 25% are registered as, as Republicans. And a big swath, about 50% are neither, independent. So we're right there in the center. We resisted the poll to either the left or the right. Interestingly enough, the other denomination that's right next to us, Roman Catholics. They also exist in the political center. Some Catholics are very much on the left, some are very much on the right, but quite a few are here in the center. And as a whole, they have neither moved left nor right. And I want to suggest that this is a strategic place for us to be. That in this context of polarization, maybe there's a reason that we exist here in the center. After all, if we move to the right, what would be the problem? What? Well, we'd alienate all those to the left, right? And if we move to the left, we'd automatically alienate all those to the right. Notice, here's, a, here's an insightful quote of, by um, Lillian Mason in her book, On Civil Agreement. She says, if your racial identity and your religious identity and your cultural identity and your geographical identity are all wrapped up with your political party, then if your party loses, it hurts a lot more psychologically. And if your party wins, every part of you has won. One of the effects of this increased social sorting is that when elections occur, they're not just competitions between two parties, they become competitions between racial and religious groups, and that kind of thing is extremely dangerous. So she's sorting that politics has become all-dominating, and so that one's racial identity and one's sexual orientation and one's social status and one's religious identity have all come under one's political identity. And so now politics has become this much more massive thing. It's not just about what do you think about some policy. It's about an identity war, right? And she's pointing out that's really dangerous. And so I think it's really wise that as a church, we've avoided moving to either side and and, and subjecting ourselves to either political take. Here's a quick rundown of our political climate in the United States. There are three major ideologies, political ideologies, and each one views history in terms of some conflict. Conservatives see that there's a conflict between civilization and chaos. They say, we're just one generation away from civilization being lost. If we don't pass on to our children the social norms and institutions that regulate us as a society, we'll lose that. We need to instill that law and order. And so conservatives are very concerned about maintaining civilization. That's the great conflict. Progressives look at history and they say, yes, but those social institutions have have oppressed and excluded various individuals, and so we need to reform them to make them more inclusive. That's their big take on history. Libertarians or classical liberals say, the great conflict is between liberty and tyranny. And so you have these three takes. Where do we stand as Adventists? What's our take on history? I want to suggest it's none three of these, but we have a different take. We have the great controversy. And the great controversy views a battle not between the left and the right, but between good and evil, between up and down. And therefore, we don't petition the world into different classes, 
that we don't have that there's this group over here and this group over here. Rather, the great controversy isn't about us against them. The great controversy is a war that's taking place within every individual's heart. There's a war going on inside of you. And so when we come up against someone, we're not trying to classify them politically, but we're recognizing that within your heart, there is some war that's taking place right now. There is a battle for your soul. And that's the controversy that we're all engaged in. This has some implications for how we think about politics. The first is, as was already emphasized, that we've been counseled to avoid being unequally yoked with any political party. Ellen White's very clear about this, which she says in Gospel Workers, page 393, it is a mistake for you to link your interest with any political party, to cast your vote with them or for them. She's not saying don't vote. Elsewhere, she has counsel to vote. But she's saying don't just vote for a party. Don't align yourself with some political ideology. We have another controversy that we're engaged in, not a political controversy, a greater controversy. However, the great controversy affirms things of social significance. It affirms the importance of social order and of human dignity and of liberty. And so it ought to lead us to social engagement. If you go back to this, this breakdown of these different controversies taking place, these different conflicts, notice the things that conservatives really value and progressives really value and libertarians really value, we can value that too. The great controversy tells us that we ought to value liberty. Absolutely, God values liberty. We ought to value a, a, a way of, of order that is not oppressive, right? We ought to value civilization and social order. The great controversy tells us to value those things. And so there's times that we will speak that may sound political. For instance, in the 1890s, Ellen White, speaking out against the ongoing effects of slavery, notes that the American nation owes a debt of love to the colored race. And God has ordained that they should make restitution for the wrongs that they have done them in the past. We could cite other examples of prohibition and other social movements the church have been engaged in that take on a social dimension. But notice, we're not doing that social action as, as an activist for any political party. Rather, we're doing it under the banner of the great controversy. That's what's driving us in our social action. Most of all, the great controversy reminds us that we're not to divide people between this party and this party, this class and this class, but that the wars between good and evil in each one of us is engaged in that conflict. And so I want to encourage us that as we think about the implications of the great controversy, that we guard against becoming servants of any other political ideology. A few ways we can do this is diversifying your news source. Watch out for motivated reasoning in echo chambers. Another is to step back from social media. Social media has become so politicized. It's easy to be drawn into it. Take Sabbath off of social media. Take a time of fasting from social media. Instead, focus on face-to-face conversations. One of my favorite verses of Scripture is 3 John chapter th- uh, verse 13. 3 John is the shortest book in the Bible. And John tells us why it's the shortest book in the Bible in verse 13. Do you know why it is? Why is it so short? In 3 John verse 13, John says, I have many things that I want to write to you. He wants to write a big book. But you know what he goes on to say? But I'm not going to do it with ink and pen. Instead, I'm going to wait till I'm face to face, that our joy may be complete. He said, there's some things that I'm going to hold off and engage in online discussion and make it a face-to-face discussion because I want us to have a fullness of joy. The last two things I want to say is we need to guard the way we speak about our national leaders It's really easy in a politicized climate to get pulled into speaking about people on the left or on the right in a really derogatory way. We need to, instead of speaking ill of those, we need to pray for them, pray for God's wisdom. 
And ultimately, we need to resist seeing the world being divided as those on the left and the right. I recognize instead there's a great controversy. It's an up and down, not a left and right. It's good and evil. And that war is raging in each person's heart. So when we come across someone, it's not us and them. It's each one of us is engaged in this controversy. And we're coming alongside them on the side of good to affirm that which is good and true and beautiful. We're out of time for today. But we'll pause there. I encourage you guys to hang out if you have any questions. And we'll begin our next seminar in about 15 minutes, asking, can we be certain that God exists? Let me say a word of closing prayer, and I'll let you move on. Father God, we've talked about a lot today. We've talked about arguments and and the need for us to make a compelling case for our faith, but also to recognize that we're not just appealing to, to the intellect. We also want to reach hearts, which means that we want all of our actions, all of our words to be characterized by love that we might cut through the hardness of hearts, that we might cut through the bias and, and whatever prejudice individuals may have to give them a clear revelation of you. Father, we know politics is something easy for us to get caught up in, big questions about how to engage in, in the social issues of today. But ultimately, Father, we want to be faithful to you and recognize that we're engaged in a greater controversy, a controversy between good and evil. And therefore, it's not our job to petition the world and to us and them, rather it's to come alongside individuals and encourage them as the very battle for the souls is taking place. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son and what he's accomplished. In his name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC to the end in Houston, Texas. GYC, supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.